Rumours that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had been wounded or killed. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. The Dow Jones is at a record high on Berkshire Hathaway's takeover of Duracell, but the S&P falls flat as energy stocks weigh down. Oil collapses as the OPEC stands back and the U.S. booms and the Twitter glow fades. Its stock sags and the S&P gives it a junk credit rating. Berkshire Hathaway's takeover of Duracell and strong results from Walmart have pushed U.S. stocks higher today with the Dow closing at a new record high. We'll talk about this with our guest host, Tobias Hexter, who is the Associate Adjunct Professor at, uh, of Finance at uh, the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we'll also talk about uh, Walmart earnings with Voice of America's reporter Ira Melman. Then after that, we ask Rikesh Mirchandani of Ocean City Capital Advisors about Prime Minister Modi's business agenda for the G20 summit this weekend. Then... We talk with our sports reporter, last but not least, Danny Hicks. Uh, he'll give us more on the Macau Grand Prix. But first, look at today's top stories. Brent futures tumbled more than 2% to below $79 a barrel, hitting a four-year low. Oil was dragged down in part by data showing that China's economy lost momentum again in October. Jeffrey Curry is the head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs, and he cites three specific reasons for the downdraft in prices. Um, first is concerns over global growth. And I want to emphasize it's not so much that the demand in the global environment is so weak today, but rather it is a downgrade in the forward outlook. Um, so that's the first point. The second point is we've seen significant increases in supply. Uh, we've had the return of Libya more recently, but more importantly, when we look at U.S. shale production, it is continuing to surprise to the upside. In fact, we like to point out each year, year-over-year growth in U.S. production is large larger than that of Libya. So in other words, the United States is creating a Libya every single year at this point in time. And then the third point is that when we look at the strategic case facing Saudi Arabia and OPEC um, against the shale environment, we should expect to see OPEC be a second mover. And when we look at the downdraft over the course of the last several days, I would attribute most to it is that people recognize that you're unlikely to see a cut in this uh, November 27th OPEC meeting. Brent crude oil is currently at $77.92 a barrel. The energy sector cut its losses late in the afternoon session after Dow Jones reported that Halliburton is in talks to buy Baker Hughes. Halliburton ended up 1% uh, higher after uh, earlier falling as much as 4.6%, while Baker Hughes rallied to close up 15% at $58.75. U.S. stocks were little changed but near record highs as better-than-expected results from Walmart and Warren Buffett's takeover of Duracell overshadowed losses in small caps and energy shares. The Dow climbed 40 points or a quarter of a percent to 17,652. The Nasdaq rose a tenth of a percent to 4,680. But the S&P 500 closed up less than a point at 2,039 as energy shares tracked crude prices lower. 
Well, Mark Faber is back on the air with more of his woebegone wisdom. In October 2012, Dr. Doom said that the market would have a 20% correction that was within the six to nine, uh, the next six to nine months, according to his forecast at the time. Since then, however, the S&P 500 has risen approximately 40%. So if he was still that bearish, then he'd be expecting something like a 60 or 70% dip now. So the question is, of course, is he still that bearish? Limited number of stocks have driven up the indices. Now, of course, with the indices significantly higher, and let me remind you, in October 2011, the S&P was at, 2000, at 1,074. So in other words, in three years, we almost doubled. Now, if you really believe that in every of the next few years, every three years, the market will double, then go and buy shares. But I don't believe that. Well, he didn't exactly answer the question, did he, Tobias? No, but it's in a, he's being in a tough spot. In the end, for the past years, it may have been a battle between miscomplacency in general at Janet Yellen, who had the printing press, and on the other hand, Dr. Doom, and the Fed always wins. But from that perspective, something did change now that the Fed discontinued their quantitative easing. And one could say that the Japanese started it, but they did it with such a shock and awe that it actually adds volatility to the movement. And therefore also a more clear bubble if you look at Japanese government bonds. So there is potential room for the downside. So uh, you agree with Dr. Doom? You, do, I mean, he said, he said, you know, that, you know, if things fall now, uh, based upon his 20% decline prediction in 2012, you'd have to actually be looking at something like a 60 or a 70% decline now. I mean, do you agree with that? I mean, no, that drastic? No, that definitely not. But I think his chorus has been that he doesn't fully believe in the market. And market fundamentals outside of Miss Jellen and the printing press haven't been that great. But now something's changed. There is room for a correction. 60, 70%. Um, I would definitely not expect something like that to happen. But he has to say something. He has to say something. Okay, so what are we looking at, sort of in your estimate, through your sort of wise finance professor eyes, <laughs> over this next uh, year, considering we had, you know, everything that's happening with the central banks, we're just past US midterm elections, and, you know, we really have this cross, uh, many, most people are saying things are looking good. Yeah, and that's, from my perspective, I don't necessarily expect a lot of downward movement per se, But what I would expect is that we're going to get movement. And if you look at the Bank of Japan with Kuroda-san's surprise announcement, it was a sharp reaction up. I think the effect of, on one hand, the Federal Reserve stopping, and on the other hand, I would say more clumsy or more surprise-prone central banks like the Bank of Japan and the ECB takeover, in combination with the fact that there are a couple of dark spots out there from a macroeconomic or geopolitical perspective, I expect more movement. But I would definitely not be surprised prior to a move down. We could see an aggressive move up. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about Walmart, which has posted, you know, really solid third quarter earnings. That's right after this message. How did people cross the harbor without the cross harbor tunnels? Where was the city hall in the past? What changes have happened to Victoria Harbor? Do you want to know more about the stories of Hong Kong through archival records? 
Welcome to the Public Records Office of the Government Records Service. Here, you can find a wide range of Hong Kong's documentary heritage. You can also visit our website at www.grs.gov.hk to access the archives. Let's learn more about the history and stories of Hong Kong. Walmart Walmart has posted solid third quarter earnings after a long-awaited turnaround in the U.S. domestic market. Net income was down 0.7% from a year ago, but earnings per share rose 0.9% to $1.15, well above expectations. Ira Melman from The Voice of America joins us now to talk about the results. Good morning, Ira. Good morning, Renita. Well, as you know, if uh, any just about anything beats expectations on Wall Street, it is up, and it certainly was that. Uh, as you mentioned, all those numbers were much higher than people had expected. Walmart has been going through some problems um, over the past few years. It is the U.S.'s largest retailer. They did indeed report third quarter earnings that beat the expectations. In fact, Walmart shares jumped 4.7% and did it $82.94 at the end of the trading day. We spoke with Charles Fishman. He is the author of the book, The Walmart Effect, about that earnings report. The most important thing for Walmart is that uh, sales in the U.S. in stores that are open a year actually went up for the first time in a year and a half. For a year and a half, individual store sales have been very slowly declining, and the only reason overall sales have been growing is that Walmart still opens several hundred new stores a year. So Walmart has yeah, said, so yeah, uh, Ira, Walmart has said that it's really keen to boost profitability in its uh, over 400 stores here in China. How's that going? Well, to uh, give a kind of a rough answer to your question, I asked um, Mr. Uh, I asked Mr. Fishman about that, and he says that the U.S. numbers were the good news for Walmart. He said that is not an applicable description of Walmart's business now in China. Walmart is really having a struggle. Um, one quarter ago, three months ago, sales in China were down 1.6%. This quarter, on top of that decline, sales are down 2.3% more. And most important, Walmart actually tells you what store visits were like. And in China, in the last three months, store visits have been down 9%. Ira, do we know why business has declined in China? Well, I wondered the same thing you did, Renita. So that's exactly what I asked Fishman about the uh, future might hold for Walmart's uh, China operations. When they first rolled out, it looked like they were really going to be, you know, they were going to be able to master the Chinese market and conquer China in some ways the way they did the U.S. Things have slowed dramatically, and I think they've they've been surprised at the. Um, quality of the competition from inside China and a little bit the challenge, the novelty has worn off there. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning and giving us that uh, great piece of information. That is Ira Melman, our Voice of America reporter from Washington, D.C., talking with Charles Fishman, who is the author of the book, The Walmart Effect. So, Tobias, um, you know, Walmart has really been focused on China. So it says. Um, but, you know, th- these guys, Ira and, and Ch- I should say Charles, suggest that, you know, 
they're having a lot of difficulty. Do you think things could turn around for them in this region? I think it's very difficult to to judge even looking at these figures because on one hand I would expect they're getting a much tougher time from the competition who quite quickly can copy or at least uh, learn from what Walmart's doing. On the other hand, there might be behind, behind the surface some deterioration within the Chinese economy. And these things we, of course, never learn from the export figures, which are thoroughly cooked. So these kind of indicators should also say maybe something. So I don't know whether it's more generic in the economy or whether it's something that Walmart can improve upon in its own competitive position. What about the fact that so much of China seems to be swipping, uh, switching excuse me, to online you know, online shopping. I mean, just uh, this past week, they had Singles Day on Tuesday, you know, it's been sort of pumped up to be this massive shopping event all online. I mean, Alibaba's really made out great, you know, as a result. Uh, do you think that poses a huge problem? I would imagine down the road, but one difference I would see as an outsider from logistics, if I would go to Shanghai, I always have a bit of a terrible time in traffic. Beijing is even worse. And if I look at what Walmart sells... It is still something that has to be delivered to your house, which might take a lot of the convenience off. They're not like the high-ticket items, I would imagine. So I'm not certain to answer that whether they got their cake stolen by Alibaba. I think it's more by the local retailers who effectively copy their pricing and their business model. China, everybody's favorite emerging market. Okay, well, I think we should talk a little bit more about India, everybody's other favorite emerging market these days. Uh, that's after a music break. The time is now 8.16 a.m. and Moody's may soon announce a ratings upgrade for India. This may be the time when the Indian economy could decouple itself from other world economies facing the slowdown. The Indian government is clearly focusing on the supply side to control inflation and stimulate growth. Let's bring in Rikesh Mirchandani, who is the CEO of Ocean City Capital Advisors. Good morning, Rikesh. So, Rikesh, uh, even as Europe and emerging markets in general look uh, relatively dismal, India appears to be booming. Can you bring us up to date? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, this time is very different from uh, 2007, 2008. You know, in uh, that period of time, all countries were growing really fast. And, you know, uh, this doesn't seem to be the case this time around because you see the U.S. is private sector is doing very well, as you just discussed earlier. And uh, But we yet need to gauge the impact of the discontinuance of the bond bank program and uh, how things will span out once there's a, ch- there's a change in the rate policy, which will be announced shortly. Uh, Europe, on the other hand, is uh, going through a massive economic slowdown. And I think the introduction of extensive austerity measures is something on the cards. Although the ECB has, is not certain that they want to uh, go into QE with the bond bank program, as uh, other countries have done. Rikesh, uh, uh, war- yeah, go ahead, sorry. Mm-hmm. The most worrying uh, risk for India as an emerging market actually comes out from China, Brazil, and Russia, because, uh, you know, uh, where, where we're concerned today, commodity prices, especially oil, is at a four-year low from 2010, uh, below $80 a barrel. And uh, so, you know, that, that poses a concern. So you see a correction there, you'll see a correction in the Indian markets too. Rikesh. But, uh, 
Do you yeah. what, what do you think might be on uh, the Prime Minister's business agenda at the upcoming meetings uh, at the G20 summit this weekend? So his, his focus is uh, uh, clearly on, on bringing, uh, you know, foreign direct investment into the Indian markets. Uh, his focus will be purely on reviving the manufacturing sector in India because, like you correctly put it, uh, the supply side is where he's focusing on, all right? The demand side has already been established a couple of years ago, all right? And that's why he even has initiated something called Make in India, which I spoke about the last time on your show. Uh, where what he's trying to do is revive uh, the manufacturing sector, which has poised negative growth for so long. Uh, you have underutilized capacity, almost between 30 and 40 percent, which he sees that the, there is a market for gl- globally, and uh, that's what his impetus or his focus is on reviving the Indian economy, especially in a scenario where you will now see interest rates falling as well as. Uh, you know, uh, inflation falling. So do we have a clearer idea, a clearer picture, I should say, of what the specific Make in India programs are at this point? It's going to, it's too soon. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it will span out. See, uh, the, the best part about this government is, uh, unlike a populist vote, there is no big bang reform that they're announcing initially. They're going very systematically about reforms and they're doing a very good job. Uh, take, for example, the key sectors like coal, which was in a mess. Uh, what, they, what they predominantly have done is, you know, they've announced, introduced an ordinance. They have, uh, you know, given a direction to lower imports on coal and also uh, initiated a new auction process. So what this does is actually, you know, they're analyzing things that went wrong. They're studying it very carefully in a micro manner. And then they're implementing their best practices where they can see a turnaround in those sectors, especially in the case of infrastructure and power. So, Tobias, I'd love your opinion here. I mean, should we be investing in coal in India? That seems so contra. Yeah, I heard actually, as a, so, bit, of an, as a bit of an outsider, I heard quite a bit about the potential privatizations of coal. Some voices in the market, especially after the massive rip-up following Modi's election, actually uh, indicated that they were somewhat disappointed with the scope of the privatization, saying that actually not that much would change except a small infusion in the government's coffers. Rikesh? Um, Well, I think uh, the government coffers and privatization is something that, uh, like I said, again, this is populist opinion globally right now. But what we're seeing on the ground and what we, we see, we feel happy about is the fact that there is finally some progressive action that's happening in the markets, in the economy right now, especially in sectors which are deficit, uh, deficient, rather, and uh, in the infrastructure sector, because if you actually note today, there's about $200 billion of assets which are stuck, which have not been executed correctly or which are stuck, which need to be completed for India to move to the next uh, level, right? So, um, like, there are, there are various opinions, but I personally believe that there's a lot of promise in what the government is doing and what it holds. And uh, I can see on the ground that they're going about it very, very systematically. Okay, Rikesh, one last question before we wrap up the segment. You know, what about the, these uh, safer-than-gold rupee bonds? Uh, there's been a lot of investment into these, specifically by mutual funds. I mean, is this uh, what retail investors should also be perhaps looking at? Yes, uh, basically with the downturn of uh, interest rates, right, uh, rupee bonds is, is something, uh, government securities and rupee bonds is something which has come into focus again since a while. 
and uh, yes retail investors can participate for a rally uh, which is in the offing because interest rate the interest rate cycle is turning now and they can they can participate specially through the mutual fund route because in retail individual investors don't have direct access to uh, bond markets all right thank you so much for joining us this morning that is rikesh mirchandani the ceo of ocean city capital well, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has agreed to buy leading battery company Duracell from the Cincinnati consumer goods company Procter & Gamble. Duracell is thought to control about a quarter of the global battery market. The deal will play, take place in the form of a stock swap with some 4.7 billion of P&G shares held by Berkshire Hathaway being returned. When the deal is completed, probably in the second half of next year, Duracell will still be left with about $1.7 billion in cash. And the swap means that Berkshire Hathaway can cut most of its stake in Procter & Gamble without incurring the kind of tax costs that would be payable had it uh, decided to sell the shares for cash. Uh, wise move, what do you think, Tobias? I must say that for somebody who actively programmed on Obama's campaign with regards to taxation, he has had a couple of cunning moves over the past month. <laughs> because I do remember that um, at this moment now Burger King is a proudly Canadian chain. So, but in the end, he's a very, very savvy businessman, no doubt. Absolutely. Okay, let's take a quick look at the numbers before we move on to our final segment today. The Nikkei is up six tenths of a percent to seventeen thousand five hundred and seven, and in currencies, one euro is currently worth uh, one point two U.S. dollars. One U.S. dollar will buy you one hundred and fifteen yen, and the pound is currently equivalent to twelve point seventeen Hong Kong dollars. Brent crude oil currently at seventy seven dollars and forty nine cents per barrel. This weekend sees the Macau Grand Prix and next weekend, in fact, is the World Championship for Boxing featuring Manny Pacquiao also in Macau. Both events are likely to bring in huge amounts of visitors and cash for the Macau economy. So let's bring in Danny Hicks, our sports contributor, to learn more. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Renisa. So lots happening in Macau, sort of yeah. in the foreseeable future uh, of sports. Uh, bring us up to date. Well, yeah, obviously this weekend, the Macau Grand Prix, uh, 61st year of it, uh, as we know, a huge sporting event. You've got uh, 211 competitors in, what, six, seven different classes of racing, including a motorcycle GP, uh, a Formula 3 Macau Grand Prix, featuring a young driver, a 17-year-old called Max Verstappen. And, and the reason he's interesting is that he's getting a, a drive in Formula 1 next year for Toro Rosso, so you can see a, a Formula 1 driver of the future over there. Um, and next weekend, as you say, Manny Pacquiao, fights for his uh, world title second year in a row he did it last november and this all generates huge amounts of revenue for macau uh, figures i can discover from last year last november when they had the macau grand prix and money pacquiao boxing the gambling revenue alone jumped 21 percent year on year just in the month of november just based on, on sports just based on the fact that you've got a huge amount of people coming in you know you've got 211 competitors racing on the streets of macau imagine all the support crews uh <clears throat> all the mechanics, the media involved, the visitors that come to see them, they've all got to spend money. They've all got to stay in hotels, and they're probably all going to have a little flutter on the casino.
casino floor while they're there. And so, Danny, <clears> I mean, that, that, sorry to, to interject, but, you know, one must ask the question then. Do you think that these are gamblers who are looking for an excuse to get to Macau? So sports business, <laughs> is that excuse? Or is it the re- reverse? Is it people who are actually interested in the sport who just happen to be spending? I think it's, uh, I think it's mainly people who are interested in the sport. I know from experience, you know, covering the Money Pacquiao fight last year, and I'll be doing the same next week, um, that, you know, there's 15,000 people packed the Kotai Arena. And most of them, I would say, come in from Hong Kong and elsewhere. Uh, and that's uh, while they're spending money in Macau, Hong Kong, they're not spending money in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, the, the, the whole uh, uh, sort of economy of Macau now is not just based on the casinos and gambling. They put on shows. They put on these Las Vegas-type events, the Cirque du Soleil, these sort of type things. So there's a whole package of entertainments there. If you, if you plunge in for a weekend in Macau, you're not just watching the sport. You're going to a show. You're eating in nice restaurants. You're staying in lovely hotels like the Venetian and so on where the Pacquiao fight will be going on. And, uh, you know... It, these big events are all going to Macau. We've, we've have just been in Shanghai, as you know, for two weeks of high-class golf, world's best there. Um, we've got Formula One Grand Prix in Shanghai, Singapore, uh, big tennis tournaments in Singapore. seems that Hong Kong is losing out. There, there, yeah. there seems to be no uh, will in Hong Kong to attract some of these big events and, and kind of keep the money here. And, and people are going to be going in their droves this weekend to Macau and spending money there from Hong Kong and the same next weekend. So do you think that other sporting events and organisations sort of will wake up to this uh, fact and more, we'll see sort of more sports business emerge in Macau over the course of the next year or more. I think that's more. certainly the business model. And, you know, in neighbouring Zhuhai, they've just announced in the last few weeks there's going to be a massive tennis tournament there next year featuring the, the world's numbers uh, 11 to 20. Now, Hong Kong's just had a, a women's tennis tournament uh, inaugurated this year but it was very low key compared to what's happening in Macau next year when the women's go there and they've got a brand new state of the art um, tennis centre which they've built specifically for it I think Hong Kong needs to get its act together it needs to finish this sports hub at Kai Tak and it needs to start attracting these big money, big revenue spinning sporting events. Oh Hong Kong what are we doing? What are we doing? (laughs) All right, thank you so much for joining us this morning that's Danny Hicks our sports contributor from the AFP so, Tobias, we've got just yeah, a few seconds left, if, if you will. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about what we should be looking out for this weekend or early into next week? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think the one that we should be looking at on the very short notice is what's the yen doing? And to that extent, to what, ex- to what extent do people believe that Japan's turning the corner, especially now that they are already trying to postpone that VAT hike? And then... It starts to look very much like the Weimar Republic, where it's just unconstrained monetary financing. These things might not end well. All right, Tobias, thank you so much for joining us this morning. As guest host, that is Professor Tobias Hexter, and he's a, an associate adjunct professor of finance at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up three-tenths of a percent to 17,441. Australia's ASX is down just marginally to 5,420. And Seoul's Kospi also down uh, about uh, seven-tenths of a percent to 1,900. And 46. This is Renita Malhotrahora winding up Money for Nothing for this week. A quick look at the weather before we depart. It will be cloudy today with bright periods during the day and a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees Celsius. The temperature right now is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 77%. And now it's time for the half hour news summary with Samantha Butler. 
The chairman of LegCo's Railway Subcommittee, Michael Tien, has backed the MTR Corporation's claim that the ongoing Occupy protests are to blame for the further delay in the completion of the South Island line. The MTRC said yesterday it had no idea when the line would be finished, citing delays to tunnelling works in Admiralty as it hadn't been able to transport explosives and other materials to the construction site. Mr Tien told RTHK the biggest problem was the removal of soil and other excavated material from the site. The removal of the soil due to Occupy Central has been very, very slow. So basically it's been storing up in the limited space within that uh, that area. So as the storage builds up, then the amount of uh, open space uh, is reduced and further work in excavating has to be slowed down. So if Occupy Central is not settled within weeks, and if it really indeed drags on till some parts of next year, this thing is going to grind to a halt. A FIFA inquiry into alleged corruption over bidding for the 2018 and 22 World Cups has descended into disarray. In its report, FIFA judged there was little evidence of allegations of vote buying by Qatar or that Russia's successful bid to host the tournament had been corrupt. But Michael Garcia, the US attorney who carried out the investigation, said the FIFA summary of his findings was a misrepresentation of the facts. The leader of the England 2018 bid, Simon Johnson, questioned the